Welcome back. Previously on Chat 10, you were all screaming and throwing things at your um, podcast listening device of choice because I left you dangling. (laughs) Stabbing other people on the bus. (laughs) Um, So I met Monica Lewinsky. Wow. I was at a uh, conference which was a uh, thing for executive assistants and personal assistants, just basically like a motivational type thing. And, and you get um, Monica Lewinsky as a success story of how like, <laughs> she was the that keynote, relationship can work super she was, well. She was the big name keynote speaker. I would cross Australia to go and see her speak. I Look, the Clintons would be one of my Jeopardy topics, so I was fascinated yep. to meet her. And she talked her, – her speech is about – she's become a, a really good global activist um, against bullying and against public shaming of people and particularly in the online space where that stuff's just absolutely endemic. Right. She's done a – like I'm ashamed to say actually I haven't seen her TED Talk but it was – Yeah, it's been it's, watched like millions yep. and millions of yep. times. So she basically um, – she tried sort of not long after that all happened, she tried, you know, a few ways to sort of get a life back and it just got smacked down at every turn. And then she was basically silent for 10 years and just, you know, she, she talks very frankly in her speech about she just couldn't leave the house. Like it was just an absolute nightmare. <sighs> like the, and so the, the TED Talk is called The Price of Shame and I think what she talked about at the conference was sort of similar terrain, but, but more has happened um, since then. And so she completely owns her own mistakes and says, I take total responsibility. I would give anything to go back and change my behavior and all of the rest of it. Nonetheless, I want to tell you what happened to me because of the degree of, she describes herself as patient zero in the global humiliation stakes, which Hmm. is true. Um, And so then she talks about the cost to her. And then, um, so she, and then she talks about what she's doing in the space around education, around not bullying people and the thing that sort of got her to think, you know what, no, I'm not going to just live my life cowering and hiding in my house in shame, I'm, I'm taking back control, was there was a case in the US of a boy called Tyler Clementi who um, killed himself after somebody um, at his college took a secret video of him having sex with another young man. Right. Um, and Monica talks in the speech about her mother – um, had almost like a breakdown of sorts when this event happened and right. Monica realised it was because yeah. she was reliving what she thought would happen with Monica. Yeah. And so then Monica wrote a piece which got a lot of coverage at the time for Vanity Fair about her public shaming. Right, I did read that. Yeah. yeah, and then that became the TED Talk and then that's led to this sort of activist work. But, I mean, I know I've said this on the podcast before but it was even more striking having met her um, how – it's just, speaking of shame, like I just feel so ashamed at what her treatment and what happened to her and just being the butt of so many jokes and for losing such a big chunk of her life yeah. to it. And um, she's a really smart, articulate, interesting, funny um, person. So so she did the she did the same talk in Sydney and in Melbourne and so I saw the Sydney one and I found her so, I mean, I'd already been impressed by her with her writing and and whatnot. And then I saw her speak and I just felt so much more impressed. I went and listened to this Slate Slow Burn podcast because I just wanted to remind myself of what had actually occurred during that period. Um, and, oh, it's a really ripper of a podcast, um, He, including he has some interviews with some key people involved with it. And, again, in hindsight, you listen to it and you just think it's not particularly pro oh, he talked to Linda Tripp, that woman who was – He does. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm fascinated I, by her role. I – Listening to the episode with Linda Tripp, I mean, I, as a chick who likes other chicks, I 
I cannot, and has had benefited a lot from female friendship. It is just inconceivable to me that you would do that to your friend, your yeah. supposed friend. I mean, yeah. I just think that is a dog act of the biggest order. And nothing that Linda's trip said in her interview dissuaded me from having right. that opinion. Um, anyway, so then I listened to all of that and then um, heard um, Monica then speak again. But, yeah, just a massively, massively impressive person. So what's she like? Was she funny? Did you get to spend much time with her? I, you know what? I, I, we got chatting at the afternoon tea at the Melbourne thing and we ended up agreeing that we were going to share a lift to the airport. Together. No! Yes. And I shared a car ride with her to the airport. But I, I think there's nobody less on the planet that needs a person, a woman with whom they thought they were having a private conversation to blab about it than oh, Monica Lewinsky. Call. Yeah, good call. So yeah. I'm not going to say anything about what we talked about in the car on the way to the airport other than that I just thought she was an awesome chick. And I'll tell you one detail that I thought was very telling. When we got to the airport she said, can I give you some money for the ride? There you go. Okay. I'll, one thing that I saw this week that made me just – laugh out loud and love her enormously was sent to both of us by our mutual friend Annie um (laughs) I just so the Washington Times has tweeted this um quote from Mike Pence uh where he says um (laughs) the vice president oh my god honestly he says spend time more time on your knees than on the internet I don't know quite to whom this advice was um was uh, directed, but um, somebody on Twitter, a woman called Lauren, says, uh, okay, who's going to tell him <laughs> about the unfortunate double entendre? Monica Lewinsky then replies, definitely not me. <laughs> and then with this sort of shy eye <laughs> emoji, oh, my God, I just thought. What a good chick. That is very funny. And also, you know how you know that someone's recovered when they start yes. making jokes about themselves? And, like, yeah. imagine how long it would take you. Because, like, look, I mean, I also entertain a huge sense of shame because I remember, like, watching comedy, oh, totally. you know, like late-night yeah. comedy shows and laughing at the Monica jokes and whatever. Just horrific. And um, to think that it wasn't very long ago and that I probably, you know, at that time – would have identified myself as a feminist and, you know, yeah. I just think why weren't we all just absolutely on the warpath in defence of this well, there's woman? there's a fascinating episode where um, in this Slate Slow Burn podcast where they talk about feminism exactly as you just say yeah. and how it was viewed and there was one, I forget the woman's name, but a high-profile feminist at the time who was the one saying um, that – the president is culpable in this situation yeah, yeah. Um, and not her. Why is she being made this object of ridicule and, you know, criminal, you know, potentially subject to a criminal prosecution? Yeah, yeah. And bizarrely, and she says in it, in the um, thing how she was horrified that the person who aligned with her on this and the only other person making this point really publicly was John Ashcroft, who went on to become the Attorney yeah. General in the Bush administration, yeah. who's a very conservative Christian. Yeah. She was like, man, this is a person that I have zero in yeah. common with. And he was the only person. And so she was sort of a bit of a pariah in the sort of feminist circles. And her theory was that um, people – 
because women had still been talking a lot about sexual liberation, it was viewed through that prism of that it was Monica's sort of agency to do whatever she wanted, that she wasn't a victim. Yeah. So people were trying to to view her not as the victim in in the situation. Right. Whereas this woman was talking more about the power dynamic. Yeah. So And I think too, I mean, if you look at what Clinton was, um uh post Bush one, um, who I mean, we now think of as this incredible libertarian, but at the time, you know, was a conservative Republican president. And you had this um, young Democratic president who was, um, you know, the author of these anti-discrimination laws and doing Mm. all sorts of um, kind of pro-feminist stuff. Yeah. That you had this um, institutional loyalty to him. Yeah. And that no one was sort of keen to side with the Republicans in what they thought was this sort of witch hunt or whatever. Exactly, and and women felt like he Kenneth had a pretty, star was a massively that's um, right divisive that figure. Women felt that Clinton had a pretty progressive program for women, and so they didn't want to derail that. And so, um, but the podcast it also gives, and I sort of had been familiar with it, but had forgotten the details about the context around things like. Um, the suicide, how, how crisis-stricken the Clinton administration was. Yeah. The suicide of Vince Foster, um, the yeah. um, white Whitewater real estate dramas, um, the Jennifer Flowers dramas, the Paula Jones drama. Like it was just this rolling disaster of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then talking about. Um, you know, how Star sort of ends up, the investigation sort of goes a bit off reservation from what it was originally meant to be. But anyway, it's an absolutely fascinating podcast. Monica Lewinsky is so not interviewed that. in it. But no. I, I listen to it. I've been on a lot of flights of recent times and I, I think there's about eight hours of it and just every single time I had a moment I just had it straight in because it was so, so interesting. Oh, okay. I'm putting that on my to-listen list. Um, uh, the other thing that I watched on my travels that I know that you have also watched is Benjamin Law's new series, Waltzing Dragon. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Loved it. So good. Yeah. I really um, – look, you know, I love Ben's work but I also – his mum is just oh. absolute television gold. Yeah. And I just – as soon as I heard that they were doing this show, this is um, basically Benjamin and his mum and, you know, other members of his family are tangentially involved but – um, Mum is the star. Um, looking at the history of Chinese people in Australia, and it is the most extraordinary story, oh. and um, and you know one of the longest stories of immigration um, to Australia that there is, and it's just um, it. I can't believe that it's taken so long for that idea to be I, done. Really, look, and, and I just yet again marvel at my own ignorance. Like, how do I not know any of this stuff? I, I read actually on um, I was on holidays from work, and I read Dark Emu, which oh, I yeah. know you've talked about yeah. extensively. So I don't want to bang across all of that again. But all I want to say is, what strikes struck me about it reading it was when you see just the sheer volume of people who noted stuff to do with Indigenous Australians and what they're actually doing on the land. It's not yeah. like one or two people have said yeah. – and it's not like he's going on accounts that have been handed down through generations of Indigenous people. He's going from writings from white explorers yep. showing up and, and, yeah. and squillions of them, like so yeah. much detail. That's the thing that I found incredibly – both persuasive and sad because I just super thought, upsetting. Oh my god! How is there all of this material and it's not sort of being taught properly in schools? And same with Ben's series with the Chinese settlement of Australia. And I just think I feel like I mean I didn't get taught any of that stuff in school, yeah. and I feel like that has done Australia a real disservice that yeah. we don't have 
haven't been in the past taught all these aspects of our history. Don't you think that – I mean, I, I do think in Australia it's um, it's very difficult to manage the two concepts of pride and shame. Mm. Like the, the idea of being ashamed of anything in your history is like – catnip to a particular brand of mm. um, sort of, well, I don't have a white armband view of history kind of activist, that things get very loud. So, for instance, you know, even the discussion about where Australia Day should be mm. is like gets weaponized really quickly into what are you attacking? What are you, are you attacking in the Australian way of life or whatever? And actually, I mean, I think that nationhood is always a journey about like knowing and recognizing more deeply who you are and the great I mean the thing that the really overpowering sense that I got out of reading Dark Emu and that I get like I feel like I'm slightly more attuned to looking for more detail than I probably was when I was much younger um, is that the stuff that you learn is a source of massive pride like about um, about things that have been achieved on this continent by Australians. And it doesn't have to be a shame thing. Like, you know, no. it's – but why why ever knowing more about um, – I don't know. I'm expressing but myself isn't, really isn't, badly. Isn't, isn't, isn't expecting do. that a country should have no shame or regret about anything in its past, it's the same as saying of an individual life that you would have sure, no shame or of regret course, of anything yeah. in the past. Like, and if you want to understand the truth of your life or the truth of your country's history – Surely you have to look at those moments which are uncomfortable to look at or which maybe don't fit necessarily with, you know, the understanding you've been brought up with yeah. or, or whatever if you actually want to find a way to sort of move forward right. yeah. in a unified fashion. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's – I think what I was trying to say earlier was just like um, because – um, shame kind of silences and you don't want to mm. go out go and find out it, it, it's against a certain um, version of Australian history to discover that oh hey guess what you know um, indigenous people in Australia were um, the first to bake bread you know mm. um, or navigate through this extraordinary um, system or whatever you know um, you're barred as a nation from taking pride in those extraordinary things because of this sort of dominant um, version of history that that ignores that, it. Yeah, that in in whose interests it is to deny mm. that stuff or to ignore it or pretend mm. it didn't happen. Which is why, when you've got, despite you've got all these sort of like sources of what people observed, you know, um, uh, what white settlers in observed when they came to Australia is um, it's hard to understand how all of that stuff could have just blown to the winds. Well, that's the other thing that if, I think – sorry. If you didn't have the obvious explanation, which is noticing that stuff and recording it wasn't in the interests of people well, writing the histories. And Bruce Pascoe I think makes the point really well that um, – when he talks of the way that the white explorers are noting stuff, how when your mindset is predisposed to think, oh, these people are uncivilised savages, no matter what they're doing and that the evidence in front of your eyes is the opposite, you're going to view it in that sort of manner. So there's this really fascinating bit where he has a somebody's diary entry about observing an Indigenous man fishing yeah. and he describes something like, oh, he's it's so lazy, he just sits there and then lazily reaches his hand in and then just pulls out fish. And, and the the entry explains what the actual process is, how 
how this is actually working. And then Bruce Basquiat goes, actually, <laughs> it's completely ingenious <laughs> because he's just sitting there doing this thing with this piece of equipment. That's and a highly engineered labour-saving device, yeah. dude. <laughs> it was just like incredible that yeah. that was how the, the guy looking at it didn't view it as like that is unbelievable that he's got this device that's allowing him to just sort of reach in periodically pulling out fish, fish, fish. Yeah, it was just – yeah, anyway. Anyway, it was a good read. Sorry, we got off the track of um of Ben's thing, but it was um Ben's also just gave me the same feeling of like, oh my god, this is such fascinating history and so interesting and how am I so completely ignorant of it? Yeah. It's also um televisual gold as well it is yeah and as you say because ben i mean ben's obviously adorable talent but his mum jenny is also just absolutely fantastic and a woman i dare say ahead of her time who left her husband in the 80s i think when she had five children to raise on the sunshine coast and um yeah she's she's amazing she's absolutely amazing if you enjoy chat 10 you can visit it well that's going well (laughs) if you enjoy chat 10 you can visit it (laughs) what my friend is trying to say is if you enjoy chat 10 you can visit our website www.chat10looks3.com what are we actually saying i can't remember no no keep like this is gold keep it going (laughs) Okay, visit visit our website. You can follow us on iTunes and leave a review. Um, Our website, Chat 10 Looks 3, just Google it, you'll get there. We've got a link called Bedside Table where you can buy books. Sometimes we have merchandise. You can download the podcast. Um, It's about it, isn't it? Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. You're the greatest. You're so good at this. Um. Can I rattle through a couple of other things because I've been flying around? Um, yeah. So that means I've been watching lots of um, stuff on the plane and I just want to go through it pretty fast. Um, I've watched a few of the episodes of the new season of Queer Eye, which ah. I really, really like. I don't think you've not watched any of Queer Eye, have you? Uh, look, I watched a few episodes in the, like the, one of the first seasons ever when it first became quite, you know. So I haven't really kept track of it in okay. all of its different iterations. Oh my God, you've got like 30 pages of notes there. What's going on? Oh, that's just your work. <laughs> no, I've just been work. doing so much stuff. Um, so Jonathan Van Ness, who probably when I started was my first few episodes, I felt like I didn't like him so much because his persona is a bit valley girl and he's very in your face. Now I just – I absolutely adore him. I've oh, never seen okay. somebody – So what swung you? Because he is so 100% himself, no matter who he's talking to, he's exactly the same person. Yeah. And I've never seen anyone pay such intense interest listening. Like when someone's talking to him, he, he who they're making over, he just mm. listens to them so intently and you can tell that he's actually really paying attention to what matters to them and if they're saying, oh, I don't want to change my hair or this or that or whatever, he's really listening – and apply, he just applies a lot of care and acceptance to people. I think he's just fantastic. So queer, I love it. I watched also um, two, actually three films um, on planes yesterday. God. Oh, sorry, this was at the cinema yesterday, right. which is the one about the world if the Beatles didn't exist. Oh, okay, right. Um, Silly premise. And it was actually quite a sweet little film. Oh, okay. Um, the other film that I watched was – in close proximity to it was called Stan and Ollie, which is um, oh, okay, Steve yeah. Coogan and John C. Riley playing Laurel and Hardy. And it's towards the end of their career when the big part of their film career is over. And so it actually – it's a film really about their friendship and it's a beautiful, gentle little film. The I teared up in both of those films, but in Yesterday it was sort of 
obvious strings being pulled to push right. your emotional buttons. But and you're like, I, I already the know Paul McCartney, so <laughs> exactly. don't try this on me. Because if you love the Beatles, you don't mind those buttons getting pushed. <laughs> but the Stan and Ollie made me tear up as well, but in a much less obvious and deeper and more subtle way. And there was also this most beautiful bit of – because as I said, the film's in the end about their friendship. So this beautiful bit of trivia at the end – Laurel lived for eight years longer than Hardy, but do you know what he did after Hardy died? Oh, God, what? He just kept writing skits for Laurel and Hardy. Oh. It was so – I just thought that was so beautiful because it just – in the thing, it was like that made them – that made Laurel super happy to be – he just got so much pleasure out of the funny things that they did together. Like if if I died and you just kept No, I knew you were going to segue to this. I knew you were going to say that. Oh, God. You just spoke to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Annabelle, tell me about Apollo 11. Why, thanks for asking, Annabelle. Oh, my God. (laughs) You could be insulting your own cakes. Um, I saw a great, I saw a really great movie on a plane too. Um, I just feel like I've got to come back with some of the like fire off a few of the things that I've seen. Um, I saw a film that I'd never heard of Mm. called Dancing the Invisible. Yeah. Not a great title. No. It's a bit like those universities that now have these slogans that are like find your curious or whatever. Like (laughs) just what? But anyway, so disapproved of the title. Feels like there's a word missing, Dancing the Invisible. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, uh, and it's a film about um, an Australian film editor who, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I'm an idiot. I hadn't heard of um, Jill Bilcock, her name is. There's probably people in the film industry just fainting left, right and (laughs) centre listening to this. Sorry, everybody. Um, Anyway... But it was on, in the documentary list, which is often where I go off on a plane. I like to um, watch a documentary. And um, it's just this most fabulous film. And it's about her techniques in editing films. She's edited so many Australian films. So yeah. I'll just, um, you know, uh, Strictly Ballroom oh. is one of hers. She She's sort of like a Baz Luhrmann muse for a little while. Um, Evil Angels, Muriel's Wedding, How to Make an American Quilt she wow. also did, Romeo and Juliet, Head On, Elizabeth, The Dish, mm. Moulin Rouge, Road to Perdition, Japanese Story, The Libertine. The Young Victoria, honestly, Red wow. Dog. She's tons of stuff, right? Yeah, Driving Miss Daisy. Mm. So uh, the dressmaker, Red Dog. Uh, so, but the most incredible thing about this doco, it's based on heaps of interviews with her and directors that she's worked with, and there's lots of clips mm-hmm. and lots of sort of footage of her working on stuff, and it's it actually. I found it so powerful and wonderful and revelatory because film editing or television editing is the most bizarre art form. Oh, yeah. And I don't ever, like, you know, I, I first watched this happen when we made our first series of Kitchen Cabinet and our um, our editor, Deb Prince, would, like, take these sort of four um, cameras that we'd had rolling on the event and somehow would just sort it of... It adds a lot of value, doesn't it? It's God, amazing. like, yeah. honestly, her ability to kind of... Um, to change even the mood of an exchange mm. by just tightening up this little sequence or going to a different shot and then cutting in and out of mm. or cutting to a close-up. or It's just absolute magic the way that you can change the energy of a scene. Mm. And this woman, Jill Bilcock, um, would talk about, you know, early on when she was working with actual film would just be like razoring it up and recutting it and just, I don't know, it's such a magic it's so magical and I, you know, because I don't have very good spatial awareness, you may as well ask me to kind of, you know, 
knit something, knit a car out of steel wool or something. Like I just have no idea how to mess with things visually like that right. and spatially, even though I can edit written material right. pretty well. And so I'm constantly the thing um, that intrigued by it. Me with it is um so I'm just thinking of Fred who edits at seven thirty. You can say to Fred Look, I'd like this to. This is my. Here's my idea. Blah blah blah. I'd like it to feel like blah blah blah. And you can almost explain it that imprecisely. Like yeah. I just, you, you, you just give the sort of weirdest sense of because you can't explain yourself because you don't have the sort of language. And then I'll come back, and Fred will have not only incorporated whatever stupid thing I've said, but it's so much better than what I could have imagined in my own head. Like, yeah. like the value that gets added, it just blows my mind. Yeah. And a bunch of these directors who have worked with this woman are just saying, like, you know, she's really tough. You know, she holds me to my original vision of the film. Right. And, like, there's this bit in um, – uh, God, what's the film? I just mentioned it with um, uh, the Strictly Ballroom. Yeah. And the way that there's – you know, towards the end there's this sort of slow hand clap scene that builds this tension at the end of this dance – dance-off thing. I can't remember enough about the plot, but um, essentially they didn't have enough shots to cover it. build this right. kind of building of tension, hand clap thing. So she she hand-cut and re-edited and repeated and built hand claps over and over again until it was like this chorus. <sighs> and like just the incredible fiddliness and this woman's devotion to oh my this God, that vision. Great. Yeah, it's great. And it just – the other thing is it just made me really proud of all of these Australian films. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's a great film. I really – I loved it. And I, it was sort of the most – I mean, I hadn't heard of it or – Was it editor. a flight, did you say? Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. It was, okay. it was put out a few years ago. And anyway, it's, I just thoroughly recommend it. It's oh, a gorgeous, awesome. gorgeous film and it made me want to – Go back and rewatch a whole lot of Australian films. I rewatched. Um, it's not Australian, but I re- rewatched Five Hundred Days of Summer. Have you ever seen that film? Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel. No, I've uh, never have seen it's probably it. it's one of my favourite romantic comedies. But I hate the ending <laughs> where <laughs> instead of leaving it, sales? instead of and I'm not spoiling anything because it starts with you knowing that they break up. Right. But instead of allowing that to sit and him to be alone, which would have ended perfectly well and been completely satisfying, they have to open the possibility of him meeting somebody else. So I just think, God, no, that's not what life's like. Thanks for ruining the ending for all of us, just by the way. <laughs> no, Is I haven't. Um, I, uh, what sort of age appropriate? For 500 Days of Summer. Yeah. Uh, Could I watch it with my 12-year-old daughter? Yeah, I think so. I'm just sort of skimming through. I don't think there's any drug taking. There's no sex scenes. Yeah, I think it's fine. All right. But don't take my word for it. Check it. Check yourself <laughs> and make sure. Um, right. Oh, uh, what else thing, have you got? One more thing that I did. Um, yeah. When I went to Adelaide as part of this sort of back and forth um, thing with insiders, I nicked to Adelaide one night to do um, a in conversation at the Art Gallery of South Australia, mm-hmm. which, by the way, I really recommend a visit to um, – I know you went there not that long ago, but like they've, they've done this sort of really interesting rehang in recent oh, years great. of their permanent collection. And it's so – they've – instead of, um, you know, just doing rooms in groups of a certain age or a certain style or whatever, they've, they mix things up a little bit um, just so you'll have a couple of works hanging together that are – 
from different eras and different styles but have a, um, a common theme or that, that, that somehow make you think differently about paintings and right. works of art that you've seen before. Oh, um, great. So, for instance, um, you know the Tom Roberts painting, The Breakaway, which mm-hmm. is like an incredibly famous Australian painting. Mm-hmm. Um, they And you think of it and you think of its national significance and its role in, you know, building this sense of Australian identity that led to federation and so on. I mean, Tom Roberts was a really important painter in that kind of movement. Instead, they've hung it in um, in this sort of collection of paintings of waterfalls, and they've um, hung it hung these paintings sort of um, cascading down the wall in a diagonal kind mm. of grouping, and suddenly the in, collection ending it. Yeah, ending with the breakaway and suddenly the collection is about movement and then you look at the painting, the breakaway, in a different way because you're kind of like, oh, yeah, okay. Because to me, because I studied, learned about it at school, that's about the significance that Roberts had in that movement. But Mm -hmm. also it's this quite extraordinary um, and disciplined exploration of movement and um, and tumbling, yeah. Anyway, so – but I was there to – uh, have a conversation with um, Honor Freeman. You know, she's the artist that did the soaps that uh, yes. I have at my house. Um, and this um, uh, this exhibition of hers is called Ghost Objects. And it's, it's mainly about grief, actually, because um, not long after she made the artwork that I have at my house, um, she her father died. And so she has clearly sort of used this productive process to work through this sort of sharp and intense grief of hers. And there's this – there's a a work called All the Tears I Ever Cried where she's made these sort of um, porcelain casts of buckets and Mm. – but the most – I mean, the beautiful and most improbable one is this – God, I can't even – I still – she explained to me how she made it. Um, it's these perfect porcelain reproductions of handkerchiefs, like little embroidered delicate handkerchiefs and scrunched up tissues and all on this sort of um, – in this collection on a wall. And they're so, so delicate. I mean, she works in porcelain, which is a really tricky and trouble-prone mm-hmm. medium. But the way that she has – just tenderly preserved these sort of artifacts of human grief that are normally just thrown away, right? Like mm. it's just um, – that's what I love about her work is she takes everyday things that people don't normally keep or that are quite transitory in your lives like a kitchen sponge or um, a soap um, mm-hmm. and instead of chucking at the bin and never thinking of it again as you would normally do, she preserves them in this most laborious and painstaking way and it seems to have this lovely deep significance about paying respect to grief and right. recognising that it's a sort of a phase that you go through and that maybe you can sort of – in some way come out the other end of but also really paying respect to um you know the the tears as they fall you know it's it's absolutely beautiful i love exhibition. her work i think it's so beautiful yeah um, the best thing was though we like i i didn't have much time so like um ran in was a bit late and sort of found her hello 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 what are we going to talk about in this conversation in front of a couple of hundred people and then oh god better go and quickly see the exhibition so I'm like chuff 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 around it and um (laughs) we were just on the way running you know down to where this talk was happening and I looked 
you know how in um, art galleries they've got a little stool in the corner where the person, you know, the attendant sits to make sure that nobody nicks a titian or something. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, underneath this this, <laughs> this chair, which was empty, there was this tissue, like a screwed up tissue. And I'm like, oh my god, mate. <laughs> Is that one of yours? It's like, I thought, oh, my God, somebody's, what? Somebody's stolen one. And um, Anna goes, oh, maybe it is because <laughs> she's made a few that um, that uh, if people are doing a guided tour of the exhibition, she's got some that people can actually feel oh. and, and hold. Oh, God. They're incredibly delicate. And so then we approached it and had to kind of like poke it and establish <laughs> it was actually just a tissue. <laughs> oh, it's still warm. I know, right? tissue. <laughs> um, hey, we're nearly out of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going. But um, just can I leave you with one just little present yes, um you, can. you know the novel olive kitteridge did you ever read it yes yeah. yeah which went on to become that series which that was loved. brilliant by elizabeth strout one of my yeah. favorite writers in it wouldn't be the current edition of the new york it's probably one or maybe two ago by the time this podcast gets posted there's a short story called motherless child by elizabeth strout and it's pulled back the olive kitteridge character oh wow it's a complete treat and it's absolutely fantastic and so if you love that it's like just go and it's oh. like just the greatest and it's good to little read treat. If, even if you haven't read olive kitteridge yeah because like like a lot of her books, I feel like they'll have continuity of characters from chapter to chapter, but they almost read like short stories. Oh. So um, it's like that. So if you did, if you weren't familiar with Olive Kitteridge, you could still read it. Yeah. But if you are familiar with Olive Kitteridge and it's her son, a treat. yeah, it's just a really great. When I saw it, I just went, oh, my God, it's Olive <laughs> Kitteridge again. So, yeah, it's fantastic. All right. Okay. Thanks, okay. Kids. See, See ya. ya.